Hi everyone, and welcome to Preparing for Launch, where we talk about the space sector through entertainment, education, advice, and insights. Today we have Joseph Dudley and Heidi Thiemann speaking about the Space Skills Alliance and advice on how you could enter the space sector. Time is X minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hi guys and welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Do you just want to give a little introduction on yourself? Yeah, I'm Joseph. Um, I well, where to start? Um, so my my day job is actually I'm a developer for a charity um, called Cast. Um, so we work with uh, with other charities, helping them um, move their services online, which at the moment there is a very very high demand for. Um, in in my spare time. Um, I have set up with Heidi the Space Skills Alliance, um, which is all about addressing the uh, skills shortages uh, within the UK space sector. I'm Heidi and I'm currently doing my PhD in astronomy at the Open University in Milton Keynes. So what I do there is I study binary stars and I'm actually looking for very long period binary stars, so slow rotating binary stars that might, might one day merge and explode. Um, so I get these telescopes all over the world, and as Joseph said, we've set up the Space Skills Alliance, and we'll hear more about that during this podcast. So, Joseph, you were the chair of UK SEDS, and Heidi, you're the treasurer. So, what experience did you gain from your experience at UK SEDS? Ah, oh, so many things. Um, I mean, I was chair at, at the end, but I started off, um, I joined as the uh, marketing officer, um, because I didn't, I didn't really like the design of the leaflets. And I said, hey, can I, can I help you make some better leaflets? And they went, yeah, we need somebody. Um, and and the, kind of the rest is, is history. But um, yeah, in terms of gaining experience, all sorts. I mean, I, I learned loads about designing marketing materials from that. Um, I learned lots about, um, I mean, the space sector and networking with people and managing projects and sharing meetings. And I mean, pretty much... Uh, all the useful skills uh, that I have, I would say, um, have, have come from uh, from all the different volunteering roles that I've held. With, with no, I think I'd agree with that. Um, and especially nowadays, considering everyone's remote working and UK SEDS is run remotely across the country, all of those tools have been really helpful working with different teams, different times. Um, it's a fantastic kind of preparation for a pandemic, which I didn't expect going into when I joined UK SEDS. Yeah, that's a good point. I remember... When we first started having things online, I was like, oh, wait, yeah, I'm used to this, having the, like, Thursday careers meetings. I've always been online, so kind of, Mm. you're used to it as well. I always ask when people say they do PhDs, how do you decide to do one? Because I find that everyone has kind of a different Mm. answer to that. So how I decided was I applied to both PhDs and jobs, and I thought whoever gives me a job first, whether it be a job or a PhD, I'll go for it. it's, it's always been a little bit in the back of my mind because I enjoyed astronomy and I enjoyed space, but it was just a matter of what came up that I felt I would enjoy for the next few years. Um, and it pretty much came down to um, the European Space Agency Young Graduate, young graduate Traineeship, which I very certainly missed out on, out, or a PhD, which I got offered like two days later, so I went for that one. Oh, sweet. Nice. 
So back to, um, well, Space Skills Alliance. So what is Space Skills Alliance and what inspired you to fund it? Um, so this is what, what inspired us. We, um, the story really, I think, starts with, with UK SEDS. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, when we were involved with UK SEDS and, and, and thinking about our careers um, and looking at what was out there, um, you know, we, we found that there wasn't a lot of information about um, careers in, in the space sector. Um, and we ended up building uh, space careers at UK, um, which UK SEDS now uh, operates. Um, and throughout that process of, of understanding what the, the sector was looking for and, and looking at all these job adverts and building up all these resources, um, we started to find that there were some gaps um, that actually, you know, there were lots of uh, panels at conferences where uh, people would say uh, the space sector is, is facing some skill shortages, um, but there wasn't really a, a strategy to address that. Um, and the, the impetus for, for us came from that, that we said, okay, well, maybe we should help try and build that strategy. Um, and it's going to need to be something that isn't uh, just done by one organization. It, it has to be a collaborative effort because it needs to involve all these different actors from across the sector, both uh, the, the companies, uh, universities, um, education and training providers, um, uh, non-profits like UK SEDS, like the uh, Royal Astronomical Society or the Aeronautical Society, um, all these different groups um, have got to come together. And so that's why we made it uh, an alliance. Um, and we, we want all these organizations to be talking to each other and sharing uh, their problems and also their solutions and trying to learn from each other um, and really um, push themselves uh, to, to do the, the best that they can do to make the space sector really great and a really great place to work um, and address that skill shortage that everybody is uh, is talking about. I think another reason is the fact that a lot of data surrounding skill shortages around diversity issues in the space industry it just isn't there at the moment and um, a lot of it comes from the same source which is fantastic as a source but there needs to be more collaboration as Joseph said in the industry with bringing this data together and making it available for others to learn from that we thought that we'd be the ones to do that. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lack of data. Um, there's, a, there's a lack of transparency. Um, students, we found, have no idea really what the sector wants um, for them to learn, um, what skills they should have. Um, there's a lack of communication between universities and, and, um, and companies. And similarly, around you know, what skills should they have, um, what kind of uh, training opportunities um, are best and that kind of thing. Um, and, and not enough of those opportunities. So through UK SEDS, um, a lot of those opportunities have been created for fantastic competitions and so on. Um, but a lot of those didn't exist uh, not that long ago. Can you give a brief history on what the Alliance has done since you started it? Um, not, not a great deal, to be honest. We formed at the UK Space uh, Conference last year in 2019, technically or launched then. Um, and since then, we've been working on mostly on our first report, getting all of that together, um, thinking of lots of other things in the background. But yeah, as Joseph said, we haven't done a huge amount yet, but we've got big plans. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's only it's been what uh, I guess coming up to coming up to nine months now. But um, a lot of that was uh, just the kind of admin of getting things going, you know, registering for a bank account and that kind of uh, mm. that kind of thing. What were the main findings from your first skills report? 
So the the really big one um, was the, the very high demand for uh, programming skills. Um, so this this isn't a massive surprise to be honest. Um, this is something that people have talked about. There's been a lot of anecdotal evidence um, around what kind of uh, shortages the uh, sector is facing. Um, but this is the first time that we've able been able to put some numbers onto those um, bits of anecdotal data. Um, so the, the main thing was about half, just under half of um, all of the early careers jobs that we looked at uh, were asking for some kind of programming skill, um, particularly C and C++, um, also Python, um, but a whole host of different uh, languages, um, platforms and so on. I think another key skill was um, what transferable skill really is that communication um, working with others is something that's really sought after by employees as well so it's not just having the technical skills the programming skills employers want uh, people coming out of university to actually have the group work skills and the uh, the ability to work with others and go straight into a company and actually get stuck in and that's one of the that's coming out as about 90 percent of all jobs are asking for that which i think all of them 100% of jobs should be asking for that sort of thing, but but it's still really high, and it's reassuring that if, if maybe if programming isn't your top um, priority or your top skill, that's absolutely fine. If you can work with others in a team, that's also something that's really positive as well. It's good to know if my one module MATLABing experience. Yeah, don't, don't worry. Be the, uh, be the, the, the other side of the stat is that 50% of the jobs don't require programming. Um, Just how you look so, at it, isn't it? Uh, yeah, you, you, can, you can be on the non-programming side if you... Uh, Sweet, because my registration for next modules are tomorrow, so I think I might kind of get some Python in there. What advice can you give to students who are kind of stuck in that exam mindset? Which obviously, it's very important, but how... Are there, what are ways to kind of express creativity in science and problem solving, critical thinking outside of like the CGP textbook revision days? Like how can you kind of get them on the side of your like revision? How can you? I mean, if you want to get involved in a hobby that's completely away from science, that's, that's definitely something you can do. But if you want to still have the kind of scientific side of things or you want to kind of increase your skills while doing none of your real work, then you can do really... You, you can kind of think of anything kind of crazy. So for, for one kind of way, I taught myself a bit more programming. I just wanted to be away from astrophysics. I didn't want to think about stars. I tried to do a heat map of the number of cats versus dogs in the UK. Um, you can get the data publicly available. Try and map it out. It sounds stupid, but it's a way where you can actually have a bit of fun. And you've got no pressure to hand this assignment into anyone. And you can make it as ridiculous as you like. But you actually still... You get away from your work, but you still increase your skills, and it can be worth it. What What were your findings? Where are the Where are the cat yeah. and dog hotspots? I mean, sadly, there weren't actually that many cat versus dog hotspots. What was <laughs> the winner? Just oh, oh gosh, it's a while ago now, so I can't remember. But I think there were more cats in London, but I might might not be. Mm. Yeah. Don't quote me on that, please. But I guess right now as well, I think one of the nice parts about having almost downtime is that you can just read for fun and. I don't know, do some AutoCAD if you want without making it towards design project, which is really fun. It's great doing things that you love for university projects, but it's kind of nice that, oh, I can just, I don't know, read some physics books that I'm not taking notes on just for my Completely. Or interest. Kerbal Space Program or, or kind of anything like that. It's, you, can, you can do so many fun things which aren't, you're not accountable to anyone. You don't have to hand it in. It's great. Exactly. The sawed off technical skill is software development, but 
like I said before, but why is that though? And should everyone just kind of rush their computers right now and start learning how to code? How important is it? Uh, the question of why is an interesting one. We don't fully know the reason, but we, we can uh, make some educated guesses based on the data that, that yeah. we've got. Um, I think one of the, the key reasons is that actually just everything in the world is becoming more digital. Um, yeah. You know, we've seen that uh, in, in every walk of life. There is now some computers involved in some way. Um, there's no longer a divide between you know, people who do things on computers and people who don't, uh, and the information gets passed from the one to the other. Actually, everybody is doing things on computers, and that level of digital literacy is is increasing. And it's no longer really enough to say, actually, I can use Microsoft Word. Uh, that's that's just ex expected along with I can read and write. Um, now we're seeing uh, the use of, of programming, the use of data analysis um, in more and more places as, as data, you know, they talk about data being the, the new oil, but actually it's incredibly valuable and everybody wants, you know, analytics about their website or their newsletter mailing list or their binary stars, um, yeah. you know, whatever sector they're working in. So I think that's true for the space as well. Um, there's also the fact that the, uh, the, Part of the space sector that's growing the most is, is what's called the downstream, so the, the bit that's uh, using all that space data. Um, uh, so uh, a classic downstream uh, space example is something like Google Maps, right? That uh, That's all based on, on satellite data. Um, and there are lots of different um, uh, other companies and apps and so on that, that use that kind of data. Um, and that's the, that's the part that's growing the fastest and that's also the part that uses uh, computer programming the most um, so it, it makes sense that therefore that skill is becoming uh, more and more important um, as the, the influence of that subsector grows. So because of this a lot of university courses are now starting to include programming. Is doing it in one module enough or do you think it's best if students kind of make that a subsection or part of the degree? Or Really the best way that you can learning, learn programming is through more project-based work so i mentioned the stupid example of mac and cats in the uk but if you do have a project um maybe instead of plotting all your graphs in excel you can plot them all in python it's it's a it's a really easy way of kind of turning your kind of skills you already have into something that will actually kind of last a long time and you can apply to any sort of project um, if you can write your um, write write a script to do something rather than manually doing it, if you're trying to identify the point of light in your image, every single image, um, that's going to be a long and arduous pro process. But if you can get a program to do that, you're going to have these skills you pick up and actually develop over time. So rather than just looking at it as it as one module that you do for three months, treat it as a lifelong learning skill. You mentioned that this space skills shortage is largely a subset of the UK's larger tech skills shortage. Do you see any differences specifically in the space sector compared to other sectors that make it less accessible? Or is this perhaps just because students aren't aware of the space sector as a possible career? So th those are questions that we, we're keen to uh, <laughs> ask and get some answers to, uh, to be honest. Um, we, we know from... Um, some other research, uh, some, some data from UK's Ed actually, um, that knowledge of the space sector, even among the kind of students who attend um, big uh, 
uh, space events like the National Student Space Conference uh, is, is pretty low. Um, so a lot of them have only heard of the really big companies. Um, Airbus is, is one that always springs to mind. Um, and they're not aware of uh, the huge range of different companies that are available. Um, and if you look at the uh, most well-known companies in the world, um, something like, uh, I think 50% are uh, tech companies, you know, they're Google, everyone's heard of Google, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, these are household names. Uh, they're, they're names, you know, my mother can, can really laugh, uh, but if I asked her to name a whole lot of space companies, she would struggle. Um, and so I, I, I think as much as anything, it's, it's that. It's just people haven't heard of the space sector. Um, they barely know it exists. Um, I guess the first name that springs to mind when anyone thinks of space is probably NASA. Um, yeah. And uh, and that, you're not unfortunately going to get a job as a, as a British national there. <laughs> I think another reason why space has also been struggling a little bit compared to tech, all the differences there is actually um, a diversity issue because tech had noticed it has a diversity issue, a lack of women, a lack of um, people who are non-white. Um, and it did address that and it's been actively addressing that for the last 10, 20 years. Really. It, it, it has had benefits and it's actually given results, whereas the, the space sector has been lagging behind the tech sector in that sort of way. So you still do see a sector which is largely um, old white men um, and it hasn't yet put as much effort into recruiting from a diverse range of people as it really could have done, which I imagine does put off um, a certain groups of people. Definitely. How do you think that could be improved in terms of recruiting and just the ethos of the companies? Well, in terms of recruiting, uh, some ways you can improve quite easily is by checking language for gender bias or any mm -hmm. sorts of other bias. So one thing we've been looking at is whether years of experience actually are needed in job adverts. Um, having, having had five years of experience doing any sort of know, French language, I, I was never good at it. Um, even after learning it for quite a few years, I'm still not good at it. But I've still got, uh, well, technically we start from when I have my GCSEs or I don't know, 10, 15 years of French language experience. I can't do any of it. Um, but if you actually ask for specific skills and quantify those skills, you can, you can actually recruit people a lot better who actually have those skills and don't put themselves forward because they don't think they've got enough skills. It's quite simple things like that you can change and it helps a lot. That's a very good point as well about experience. I know a lot of people, including myself, who they apply for the first proper internship and the only thing they have in their CV is things they did in school. It's that kind of threshold you need to meet and re reach after leaving sixth form when you're like, hey, my whole life has just been to get to university and now I want a job, but my CV is nothing. There's nothing on it because everything was just under 18. I mean, I agree yeah, with you this is a, a kind of catch 22 that we see a lot of, uh, you know, you need at least three years experience to do this entry level thing and you go, hang on, but how do I get my three years experience if I can't get three years experience? Um, but uh, for, for students, I think it's, it's worth remembering that actually you can spin a lot of um, the, the stuff that you've done at school or at university uh, in, a, in a different way. Um, I see a lot of people putting on their CVs kind of almost embarrassed about it or feeling like it's not proper experience because it wasn't paid. But that, that doesn't matter. The fact that you, you've got some money at the end of the day um, is not actually important. What's important is did you gain any useful skills? And if you were, you know, running a, 
a school bake sale stand and you had to manage money and you had to think about the, the budgeting and you had to prepare, okay, how are we going to bake a hundred cakes and the logistics of moving the cakes around. Like those are all useful skills, even though they feel like, oh, that's not a real job. Um, it, you're getting the useful skills. And if you present those in the right kind of way and relate them to the work that you are hoping to get and you say, okay, well, it's not baking cakes, but here's how it, it maps, um, then actually you put yourself in a much firmer footing um, when applying for, for jobs straight out of uh, university or, or you know, internships while you're at university. What was the most surprising or unexpected insight that you gained? I find it weird because I think the programming one is definitely one I'm both surprised and unsurprised about because it's, 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 We've mentioned it before that it's such a high percentage around half of jobs or early career space jobs needing programming and everyone's been saying this but at the same time when you see the figures you go oh my god that's actually quite a few jobs um, um i also think i was surprised by the fact that around 10 percent of jobs didn't actually list any transferable skills and every job you require transferable skills every job you have to talk to someone you have to interact or feedback on what your project has been doing um what are those ten percent of jobs asking for? It's it's a bit it's a bit weird. Yeah, I, I can't think of any job that you wouldn't need to communicate with at least one other person. Yeah, exactly. some job adverts are just poorly written mm, and definitely. and <laughs> assumed. And and that's an area for for improvement. Actually, you know, there's some low hanging fruit in terms of just making it a little bit clearer what you actually want from uh, from people. Um, I think the most surprising thing for me. Um, in terms of our results was the fact that there's this, this kind of cliff um, after the first couple of um, yeah. competencies, it drops quite low quite fast. So you start off with interpersonal skills and, and communication skills at the kind of 80, 70% mark, dropping down to uh, programming and around 50. And then you've got this long tail of, of skills where they're asked for in you know, between 10 and, and 20% of, of jobs. But it's very quick, that drop off, from the ones that are absolutely required, those communication skills that are needed in pretty much every single job, um, to all the others where you think, oh, you know, people have been saying to me for years, I need to pay better attention to detail, and yet they're not really asking for it that much. Yeah, that's a good point. I remember I was looking at one a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, and it would show your how you've paid attention to detail in your life, and I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't the detail. Okay, I just. Okay, I'm a physics major. Is there some sort of detail that you have to work in that? I don't... You have attention to detail from doing physics. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what advice would you give to students looking to develop their skill set while still at university? Get involved in anything you can. Um, yeah, UK really, SEDS. Yeah, definitely get involved in UK SEDS. I mean, I'm sorry, I should have plugged that straight away. <laughs> um, if, if, okay, if you're looking to go into space or aerospace, um, honestly the best thing is UK said so I'm not just saying that because from the podcast I've been involved for many years but it really for me it's where I've met everyone in the industry I've been given so many opportunities to actually get involved in projects that university wouldn't have given me the opportunity to um, I have gained an incredible number of skills from UK said in space careers uh, running conferences um, and if maybe you're not you're, you're not wanting to come do the more uh, leadership or organisational sort of things. Get involved in a more technical project. UK says run things like the Olympus Rover trials, um, um, 
rocketry competitions, um, hackathons. It's it's the type of thing where you can maybe just spend a short amount of time learning some really key skills you wouldn't get outside the university. Um, and it's they're just so much more valuable than you think they are. Yeah, I mean, I take take every opportunity. Um, exactly. I, I think also there's a there's a big there's a big difference between uh, you know just joining a society, whether that's UK SEDS or or the basketball society or you know whatever you like really, um, and being very actively involved in it. Um, and some people conflate those two. Uh, and think, well, you know, I joined all these societies, therefore, you know, I'm doing everything that I can. Actually, what I find much more valuable, um, you know, both as having gone through it and also when looking at people's applications, um, is really putting your all into any uh, activity, uh, you know, whether that's becoming the, the, the president of the society or being really involved in a competition or, you know, doing loads of outreach or something like that, because the more you put into these things, the more you get out. Absolutely. Um, you, you know, you gain more skills, you gain a bit more, uh, you know, confidence because you start to get really good at something. Um, and then you know, you're often then asked, okay, can you teach some other people how to do this, which then, you know, develops your, your interpersonal skills and so on further. Um, I remember we had a, an application, um, for a, for a role where, um, you know, we're looking for someone involved in space and, and so on. Um, and actually the person who's successful, uh, we really like the fact that she'd be president of her trampoline society. Uh, so nothing to do with space whatsoever, but through that, she was saying, you know, I had to organize, um, uh, trips to trampolining competitions and, you know, get the team together and book the minibus and arrange the rooms and, and all these sorts of things. And so actually, you know, through that process, she was gaining all of those transferable skills, uh, which were incredibly useful for the role that she was applying for. Um, and she also had an interest in space, but you know, she didn't need to have done a really technical extracurricular activity. You can, you can do whatever you like as an extracurricular activity, provided you're taking those opportunities to, to gain new skills and push yourself further. I think one key thing to mention as well is you don't have to do everything. You don't have to be the best at everything. Um, obviously, get your degree done if you're doing a degree or your A-levels or whatever you're doing, that is obviously the prime focus. Um, and if you can do one other thing and do it well, then that's way better than spreading yourself in, stressing yourself out, and then kind of ending up not actually gaining that much from any of it. Just do one thing, do it well, and have fun with it. It's better to do one thing and like really tone in on it and do it specifically in a lot of work than just kind of being members and sit in the back of the room, a bunch of things. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I think as I say, I wouldn't I wouldn't go just for one. I'd get say you know get a handful of skills, um, and they might be very complementary. They might be actually you kind of want to keep your options open, you know, um, and say, well, you know, I really like this this uh, science subject that I'm doing, but you know, also I want to improve my language skills um, because that's that's something that I want to do, and also is going to be useful to me. Um, and to, to be able to, to have those, those different skills makes you more useful as, a, as an employee, but also, you know, makes, uh, it makes things better for you, really, that you've got these different strengths you can play to rather than saying, there's, there's only one thing that I can do. And, you know, let's hope that I can, you're pinning all your, your hopes on, on that one thing. So you both have STEM backgrounds, Joseph, you did engineering and Heidi doing physics. How have your degrees been useful to you so far in your various roles? 
I'll start with a PhD. Um, I didn't take the Python module as undergrad. I didn't do the programming. I didn't do the stellar atmospheres or the stellar evolution. Guess what I do every single day? I work on stellar evolution and programming. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I, I should have, I should have learned more. And I think I could have taken more from my undergrad if I had had some kind of literally 2020 vision um, to make a comedy year. Um, but I mean, in terms of the actual content, I didn't actually take a huge amount of content from my undergrad to my PhD. I took more of the skills, um, the kind of the ability to look at data and go, okay, this is wrong, this is right, this is how I thought it and make sense of it and pull it out into something that's relevant for a scientific paper. Um, and it definitely was the project and the teamwork and collaborating with uh, other scientists around the country, which I took on as one of the key things. So even though I learned about quantum mechanics for four years straight, I will never use that again. Um, but the fact that I spent um, three months working on a quantum mechanic project with about three or four other people and doing a little bit of programming there, that's way more helpful to me. I think um, it's, it's hard. To, to pin down exactly what I kind of got out of my degree. Cause I, so I did aeronautical engineering um, and I haven't gone into uh, really an aeronautical job. Um, so, you know, there's a huge amount that I've crammed into my brain about uh, wings and, and, uh, and fuel equations and beam buckling and, and all sorts of stuff uh, that is just lodged in there. Um, but it's actually not very useful and it's gradually um, uh, wasting away. Um, but I think that there are some more general skills that you, I didn't even realize I was picking up, I don't think, um, until, until afterwards. Um, that kind of analytical thinking that doing a, a STEM subject, really any STEM subject, um, it teaches you. That's slightly different from the kind of analytical thinking that you get in humanities subjects. Um, and I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. I think they're just different ways of approaching problems. Um, but it's something I didn't really notice until you know, talking with uh, other people in the world of work, um, you know, arts graduates, and just realizing that actually we approach problems in very different ways uh, because of the, the different ways of thinking that we've been trained in. Um, so, you know, I, I tend to, to look at things in, in quite a, okay, you know, what do we need in order to achieve this? And, and uh, um, you know, what, what are the, the steps in the kind of engineering process? What am I going to need to construct here? Uh, constructed my sense in a, a programming way. Um, and yeah, I think it's really valuable to have those different perspectives. Um, so I think that's, that's the key thing that I got out of my STEM, STEM degree. Really. This is kind of a big question. Well, maybe not. I was quite indecisive of my degree choice. I went back between aeronautical engineering and physics and astrophysics like, every day. So what advice would you give to students who can't decide if they want to go for the pure science study route or engineering? I really don't know what advice I'd give because I was in that exact same conundrum as well when I was 18 doing my UCAS application. I had one identical, almost identical physics and engineering um, application to send off. And in the end, I just thought I would enjoy the astronomy side more and it seemed to have worked out. Um, I think something that is key to remember that if, if one, one of you enjoy it, then you'll be fine for your degree. But two, engineering and physics are very closely linked and 
a lot of space companies do hire physicists to go into the systems engineering roles, that sort of thing. You're not completely blocking out a path if you do one or the other. You may want to consider what projects you take at university or what internships you apply to or what extra kind of um, experience you gain. But because you choose one or the other, you're not, you're not, it's not a career end, you're not blocking off part of your life. You can, you can still do either of those routes, even if you've chosen one for now. Absolutely. If you look at a lot of um, job adverts, you know, they don't say you must have a physics degree or you must have an aeronautical engineering degree um, because it's, it's kind of impractical because the difference between a physics degree and an engineering degree um, can often be as much as the difference between an engineering degree and, a, and an engineering degree at another university. Um, so, you know, employers can't always be sure that you're going to come out with this specific skill set because those modules vary um, and you know there are individual choices as well um, so what's more often asked for is you know a, a degree in any one of these handful of subjects it's normally you know, a variety of stem subjects um, because they recognize that they build up those uh, ways of, of analytical and numerical thinking um, regardless of the exact specialism that you go down um, similar to, to Heidi I mean I, I started off I wanted to study maths. I was sure I wanted to study maths. Um, and then I moved, I thought, uh, yeah, maybe a bit more, I want to apply it a bit more. Okay, well, I'll do physics. Uh, I, I want to apply even more engineering. <laughs> oh yeah, I want to apply even more to a very specific, okay, aeronautical engineering. Um, but I think I think back to you know, doing UCAS forms and so on, and it worries me that I can't really remember why I picked this degree that I ended up doing. Um, like I feel like I should have some, you know, a paper trail, some documentation that says, you know, I considered all of these things and then I opted for this. And instead I'm like, well, I, I don't know, was it, did I just pick it? Cause it was alphabetically at the top of the list. Uh, you know, it's, it's a concern. I, if my cursor had slipped, I would have done archeology. span uh, So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure to be honest, uh, exactly why I picked it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it was it was interesting and it was useful um, uh, and provided you you find whatever subject you go for useful and, and interesting. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about picking a, a particular one because mine's not been very useful in my actual job, but it's yeah. a good experience. What a lot of people think as well is that physics and engineering is the only route into space. Um, whereas you've got space lawyers, space artists, you've got science communication, space yeah. business, you need business analysts and business development people to actually keep the whole thing running. You can be involved in space even if you don't like physics or engineering. And I think that's the key point is that what with our results, 50% of jobs do programming, 50% of jobs don't. A lot of those jobs aren't even science. You, you can be heavily involved in the space sector without having to do a single equation, which is great for some people. There are plenty of students who may perhaps be looking at starting their own company instead. Where do you begin? How do you turn your ideas into this reality? And did you guys encounter any difficulties or trouble? It's a good question. So I feel like we may not have done the typical starting a business that a lot of people think of when you start a business, um, because we sat down in a room and for about six hours and just wrote a strategy document. Um, that's kind of how we started it. And we just got a bit carried away. 
and then it all kind of spiraled from there and we just sorted out like filling out the forms with the government and starting a bank account eventually um but it, it's it's not too tricky to start it that bit isn't the tricky stuff it's a bit slow but what is tricky is actually having something that is a kind of sellable product um so i guess import isn't a sellable product in that respect but it's having something which you can actually give to the world and say look we are good at this so now will you invest in us or collaborate with us so it's it's not necessarily setting it up it's having that first piece of work to really showcase your skills and that's what the hard work really goes into yeah we we have definitely haven't done it kind of the traditional way because we're not I mean, we are a company legally, but we're not a, a kind of, we're not profit making. Um, so we've approached this slightly differently. And yeah, the, the, it's terrifyingly easy to fill in the forms and set up a company and suddenly you go, oh my God, I'm a, I'm a company director and I have real legal responsibilities. Um, but yeah, the, the, the tricky part, I think Heidi is absolutely right, is for a, if you're if you're trying to make a profit, then you've got to have a product that people want to buy. And in our case, it's very similar. Um, you know, but we're trying to build a, a coalition, an alliance here. Um, so we need to convince uh, organisations within the space sector to to buy the product of kind of membership, really, um, of of getting on board and, and committing to some um, principles about you know how they go about. Um, recruiting and, and looking for skills and, and so on. Um, so that's that's the really hard thing. Um, and that's why we sat down for, for ages and just kind of hammered out this document and said, okay, what would we do in these situations and what is it we're really trying to achieve? Because we started off, as all ideas do, you know, as kind of a, oh, what if we did, what if we did this? You know, do you think we could we could turn that into a an organization, an idea or a product? Um, and you've got to you've got to play with it a bit um, because often your initial idea is not quite right. Um, it's not quite something that's sellable. Um, but you can say, okay, well, how could we adapt this? And we and we had to do that a couple of times. You know, we we um, had to pivot a little bit, um, and we you know we got feedback where people said actually you know this bit of your idea not very good, but this bit this has got some potential. Um, uh, so you've got to hone it and, and get something worthwhile out of it. And I'm sure we'll keep doing that. You know, it's not a case of you create a company and then job done. You've got to keep uh, improving what you're doing and, and responding to the feedback from your customers or in our case, your members, um, in order to yeah, improve um, and, and produce something better and, and keep your um, organization going really is also the fact that you actually need a network like networking at a conference you need a network of people who believe in your idea or trust you enough that if, you, if they gave you money you wouldn't just run off with it you'd actually put it into a product you'd put it into improving something so it is it as much as it is about having a product and having a, a, a kind of strong business um kind of background and uh, plan you also need to have that network of people and space, the space industry, especially in the UK, is still pretty small. Once you know a few people, you kind of know everyone. So it's it's getting on good terms with those people and building up relationships, which is half the battle or half the fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think there's you're right. There's no like this clear cut way to start a company. You're starting your own thing, so it's not like a set of you need to do this first. Like obviously, there's the stuff you need to like, bank count and taxes and 
hiring, but there's no, just kind of, no one tells you how to do that. No, there, there are loads of, of guides out there. Uh, you know, here's how to write a business plan. Here's how to do this. Um, a lot of them we found weren't very relevant to us because, you know, we're, we're trying to create an, a nonprofit. We're trying to create a think tank, um, which is not something people normally go about yeah. doing. And, and there's especially not a guide for that. Um, so yeah, it's, to some extent you just make it up as you go along. Um, and you get to a point where you say, Oh, okay. We're apparently we're doing this. Who knew? Um, and then and, one day uh, director business cards turn up in your well, mail. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a real thing now. Mm. Other people are saying it's real. It must be. Um, uh, and yet having, having that network, you know, we've, um, spent quite a lot of time in the space sector. Um, and built up relationships with with a lot of people at different companies, um, and that's been incredibly valuable um, in getting this uh, going. Uh, and it's not you know it's not enough. You can't just post it on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn uh, and hope that everything will, will will resolve itself. You know you've got to work those relationships um, and uh, and get people on board through the. Um, yeah, what, what you've already got with them, really. What are you hoping employers and other groups take from this research and the taxonomy that you've created? Well, one of the key with the taxonomy is that at the moment there isn't really a universal language for how to ask skills or how to ask for different experiences or, or technical skills. Um, and I mean, it's, it's not the near future, and other companies are already doing this in other sorts of sectors. But having some sort of universal language that anyone can look at a job advert and go, ah, this is exactly what I need to have. And maybe this is what I don't have and need to develop rather than trying to guess because you have to spend quite a lot of time in job adverts actually trying to work out what the heck they want from you. And that's that's that takes so much time. If we have this universal language, um, we can make it hiring more inclusive, quicker and just a whole lot better for everyone on both sides, both on the hiring side and on the applicant side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, I mean, I, I hope that they uh, look at this report and, and see some of the results that we got out and understand the scale of the problem, really. Um, so this, this report is just the first step for us, really. Um, so one of the issues that we identified very early on was there's this lack of data, um, and this is the first uh, first bit of data uh, to mm -hmm. start building up an evidence base that's to inform that strategy. Uh, because I think for too long the space sector has been kind of winging it, which is okay when you're a very small sector um, and you know able to to largely just poach from other sectors, um, and that's worked for a while. I think now that you know, it's one of the fastest growing sectors of the economy. Um, that, that approach is not going to work. You know, it needs to be a lot more uh, carefully thought out. Um, and, and especially if the demand is for programmers um, and, and that demand is increasing, you know, that puts the space sector at odds with the tech sector. Um, we know that there's a tech skill shortage on a huge scale, um, not just in the UK, but, but all over. Um, and if we're now saying we're we're going head to head with the tech sector, who are, who are better known um, and in in a lot of cases uh, pay better, 
then the SpaceX has got to do something to, to respond to that. And, and we really want to uh, stimulate that discussion. You know, I don't think we've got all the answers by any means, um, but it's, it's time now for the SpaceX to be uh, taking those problems really seriously and working collectively to, uh, to address the issues. So what are the next steps with the Space Skills Alliance? Oh, many. <laughs> I mean, um, we, we've, we've just re released a, even our report just this Monday. So we'll have a meeting in a couple of days, kind of debrief and work out what we need to do. But we've got, we've got loads of plans of different ports we want to work on. I mean, we want to repeat this sort of analysis for different layers and levels of the sector. Um, for example, kind of mid and senior career jobs um, to see how the kind of skills demand changes. Um, we want to work on kind of helping create more figures um, to add to policy, um, putting out some guidelines on best practice for hiring, that sort of thing. Um, we've, we've, got, we've got a lot of plans. Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of, there's a follow-up question from, uh, from our report, which is, okay, so, you know, 50% of these jobs require um, programming skills. Uh, what, what do we need to do then? You know, what, what is the next step? Um, and we started putting some of that together and we realized that actually it was just ballooning into its own report. Really so we, we've split that off. Uh, so we, the, the report that we published um, uh, this week um, is just the, the, the stats and then uh, a future piece of work that we are um, working on at the moment will be what kind of actions uh, is the space sector already taking? How can those be changed? And, and, and what, uh, what new things can we do? Um, but also, in terms of our next steps, we're very much informed by the demands of the, of the sector. Um, this is a, a collaborative thing. And we want to know from uh, the companies and, and universities and, and all the different players um, what what information is it that they need in order to to make those decisions um, in order to uh, put together a coherent skill strategy? So we're we're in conversations with a, a lot of different um, groups about that. Um, so our next steps will very much be informed by that. Amazing. Ideally, what do you hope to have achieved in five years' time? It's like an interview now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please see yourself in five years. I'm a very kind person in five years' time. I'd like to be even kinder. Um, <laughs> Jacob wrote that question and that. <laughs> uh, it's, I, I, it's really hard to know where we'll be in five years' time because I think uh, I, I, the sector's changing so quickly. Um, and we'll be, by 2025, we'll be halfway to the kind of 2030 goal of having 10% of global... global Space industry, I think that's a figure. I hope I haven't mixed up GDP and 10% 10, 10 of the uh, global market share. That's it, yeah, that's that's the phrasing. Oh. So, I mean, it's it, there's going to be rapid expansion, and obviously, we're going to have to change and adapt to fulfill whatever needs arise. But, I mean, hopefully, what, what ideally we would like to have is a, a kind of a good set of reports which are informing the sector, informing things like National Space Skills Institute. Um, informing universities on where they can direct their teaching to help students better. Um, I don't know exactly what form all of this is going to take, but we, I mean, I, we're both still planning on doing it and carrying on as long as we can. 
but uh, yeah, five years is a is a tricky one. I mean, it's it's very early days for us right now. As you say, we only launched at the end of last year. Um, so in five years, you know, we'd like to to be the uh, the alliance we we're saying that we are. Um, so have that broad coalition of different organisations, um, and have really um, made some good progress towards um, a, a skill strategy for the sector um, and, and implemented some real change. Um, it's taken a long time, you know, this yeah. isn't something, you can't change the behavior or the approach of uh, companies or, or a sector um, overnight. Um, you know, people have to be uh, convinced you've got to build up your evidence base. Um, and even once that's happened, you know, actually uh, changing the structure of a, of a course or the approach that um, companies take when hiring and that kind of thing and um, that, that that takes a while um, so it's not something that's going to be achieved really quickly but hopefully within five years um, we'll have we'll have got part of the way there um, I'm sure there'll be more work to do but excitingly the space sector will also have have grown it's growing pretty fast at the moment um, and yeah it's, I mean it's a, it's a field that's evolving uh, and who knows, five, ten years, you know, we, we may be seeing uh, the Space Skills Alliance, uh, you know, far in the future, operating in space with everyone else. Okay, uh, be very exciting. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're looking forward to opening our Lunar Regional Office. Um, Fantastic. What changes have you personally seen in the space sector in the last decade? Oh, I was... Or five years. <laughs> <laughs> I think the main thing is probably just there are so many more companies now. Yes, um, startups. Uh, yeah, I mean, the a, a huge number of the companies that um, I've interacted with, or I have friends who work at, you know, these companies didn't exist um, five or, or ten years ago. I mean, the UK Space Agency, I think, is only about ten years old. It's ten years old. Yeah, they celebrated yeah. in March or April this year. Yeah, so... I mean, that's a massive transformation. Before that, we had the British National Space Centre. Um, and space wasn't a, a government priority. Um, we didn't have a... Um, well, we, we had Helen Sherwin, but um, she didn't get nearly the same amount of publicity as, as Tim Peake did when he launched. Um, and just something I found anecdotally um, is there's much greater awareness of space among the public. Mm. And the way I measure this is that um, my, uh, my aunt and my uncle and my mum, they know more about space now and they, and they see it more in the newspapers and they tell me about it and send me little cuttings. And I go, yeah, Why no, I, I already saw that. Right, the public do know a load more about space now. Uh, I don't want one particular example that's grown suddenly and really quickly is actually astrobiology. Um, we're seeing a huge number of research institutions actually have a huge boom in astrobiology. At the Open University, I think we've hired something like 70 astrobiologists in the last year, which is mad. Um, so if you're looking for kind of the more kind of research areas, some of these are really taking off. CubeSat satellites, mega constellations, mega constellations. I have, I have my own beef with as an astronomer, um, but those those sorts of things with providing global internet coverage and global um, yeah. kind of Earth observation coverage in almost real time, that sort of thing is going to be incredibly valuable. And it's just a question that people didn't think about ten years ago. No, even even last June when SpaceX sent out the first megaconstellation kind of batch, astronomers didn't expect it. 
Oh, and yeah. also, oh gosh, Skywarra launching, I'm doing their first rocket test just a day or so. Like we've, we're going to have space, we're actually going to have spaceports in the UK. Oh my goodness, how did I forget that? We might have a spaceport in Scotland, in Cornwall. I can go down to Cornwall and be on the beach and watch a rocket launch. Like how cool, well not a rocket launch, a vertical, vertical rocket launch, um, a horizontal rocket launch vertical in Scotland. But that's the sort of thing that was a complete kind of dream 10 years ago. Now it's actually being funded, it's real. Um, and we might be having Virgin Galactic launching satellites in the UK within the next year or so. How cool yeah. is that? I, I, spaceports just blow my mind because yeah. they, spaceport to me is a word from science fiction. You know, it's up there with like androids and wormholes and, you know, star destroyers, really. It's, um, it's not a real thing. And then suddenly we have, it's enshrined in law and we've got actual politicians talking about it, not just like uh, sci-fi nerds. Um, and, and yeah, there are now spaceports. Who knew? Um, so, and that's, that's all been in the last few years. Um, so I think five, 10 years from now, it's, it's very hard to say what it's going to look like, but we'll probably be really surprised. <laughs> Genuinely space tourism could be a thing. And I yeah. really hope it gets cheaper because I cannot afford calls of a million pounds to go into space right now. <laughs> or ever. I just have one um, more question for you guys. What is the main message that you want students interested in the space sector to hear? One thing. One thing. Get, get involved with your case sets. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. your case sets. Maybe it's not for space specifically, but it's do what you enjoy, do what you're good at. It's you're only going to do well if you do those two things. Um, and if you're good at getting involved in UK SEDS and kind of all that sort of stuff, then even better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I, I'd say there's not just one route into the space sector. Um, you should never rule yourself out and say, oh, yeah, I can't do it anymore because I didn't study physics or I didn't study engineering or anything like that. Um, there are people from all different backgrounds um, and do what you like. And, and if you, you like space as well, then there's, a, there's uh, room for you. Well, I think that's it for today, but thank you so much, Heidi and Joseph, for joining us. I hope everyone listening enjoyed getting an insight into the skills needed for the space sector. Be sure to check out our website, spacecareers.uk and ukses.org for all the latest careers information and other news going on in the space sector. And be sure to join me in two weeks' time at Thursday at 5 for the next episode. Bye, guys. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed.